Welcome to Virgin Territory, a podcast brought to you by SHIP. Each episode brings you new guests and new topics. We ask all the questions you are dying to know, from dating, sexual education and wellness, to kink, polyamory, and everything in between. Now please welcome your host, Vima Manfredo. Welcome back, everyone, for another episode of Virgin Territory. It is supposedly the middle of summer, but I wouldn't know because we are banking these episodes from the winter. Um, I just want to think that I'm already back in summertime. I can't wait. Um, But today we have a very special guest, um, and maybe we'll get a co-host jumping in every once in a while. Maybe not. That will be a surprise. Um, But we have V with us. How are you? I'm doing well. Uh, So let's start with, um, tell us a little bit about yourself and what do you do? Sure. I am 28 years old. I've been working in healthcare for about three and a half years. Some of that being hospital experience, some of that clinic experience. I got a master's degree in public health. And before that, I got my undergrad in studio art, minor in biology. I know it's a crazy combination. (laughs) Uh, Originally, I was going to do medical illustration with that and life just took me to public health. So Um, right now, I basically just do artistic stuff on the side, whether it's drawing, writing, singing, just, you know, trying to have fun between the mountains of medical legal work I often get stuck with. So (laughs) yeah, right now, I currently work in the medical legal industry. And the short version of what I do is I kind of run a business behind the scenes, so to speak, I work with an expert witness where he will ask me to do medical research for him for the casework we get, majority of it being medical negligence, and I'll do everything for him, and that's how I get my paycheck. <laughs> nice. And you said that you do art on the side. Um, how can we find your art to look at it or listen to it? <laughs> <laughs> I've got one of those link tree things. It's on campsite. Uh, do you want me to send you an email with the link, or how would you like me to do that? Uh, we have it. Um, so for our listeners, it will be on the show notes. Um, I just wanted to give you the, the chance to plug it in. <laughs> yeah, uh, that's the best way to find me because sometimes, you know, life happens, usernames changes, whatever. And I would hate to tell someone, oh, yeah, do this when actually the name changes or, you know, social media throws a fit. <laughs> yeah, that never happens. Social media is going fits. Um, so we'll put our, your campsite, um, on our show notes and you can find all of the links to find V over there. Um, so going back to the meat of the problem, um, or the show, not the problem, uh, you said you're in public health. What got you to get into that? Well, I've always had an interest in interest in medicine and essentially lifestyle medicine to begin with, with, you know, how can we prevent a problem before getting worse? Um, So that's kind of what really led me onto that path. Like I said, originally I was going to do medical illustration, but the program I wanted to get involved with, I noticed that it was not accredited. So I was like, oh, dang, I have to change my plans. And I started looking at potential grad school options with a general sense of what I was interested in. And I stumbled on Uh, public health and I messaged the head of the public health department of my undergrad explaining you know this is what's going on in my life these are my general interests do you think it's something I would really like and he's like well because I've worked with you a few times 
be it helping you prepare for grant writing or medical research in general I think it would be a really good fit for you so I was like okay I'll I'll take a shot I got accepted into a public health program with a concentration in policy and management which basically means I just know how to read legal contracts and legal paperwork and I know how to translate it so the average person knows I know how to interpret contracts create them that kind of thing that's definitely interesting. It's um, a career path that we haven't seen too much, at least on, on this show. Um, so what are some of your favorite things about that career path? Originally, I want to do more research with it because my thesis to get into the program, because every grad school wants you to write a paper or whatever to try to get yourself involved with it. I actually did it on teenage pregnancies and I observed through numerous different research papers. Um, what is the sex education like? Is it state mandated? Is it left up to the schools? If it is, how comprehensive of a curricula it is? And I noticed the very evident evidence-based trend <laughs> that those who had a very solid comprehensive uh, standing on sex ed, there were overall much less teen pregnancies, less STDs, STIs, that kind of thing. And those who had where it was basically it's optional, but when, you know, when they say it's optional, it very rarely gets done, if at all. Um, those areas had much higher rates of teen pregnancy, STD, SDI, and of course, the psychological potential trauma that can come with it. So I essentially wrote about that. And of course, they asked me, how would you change this? And I said something I don't remember, because I wrote that paper years ago. <laughs> but that was how um, I got myself onto that. And right now, majority of public health with how I work is I want to eventually get certified in lifestyle medicine with a focus on cannabinoids since that seems to be the up and coming new magical thing for medicine right now with how there is evidence that cannabinoids treat so many different conditions between chronic health, mental health, physical and all that. So ideally like 10 year goal, I would like to have that some sometime happen. So one of the questions that we've been talking about before uh, start recording was about cancer and sexuality. Uh, can you share your experience with um, both of those? Sure. I am a cancer survivor. I got diagnosed with Hodgkin's lymphoma, which is a type of blood cancer when I was 24. It was in the late fall and I immediately started on treatment. I was on chemo for about six months. I did it once every two weeks. And then after that was done, we waited about a month and we did radiation for about two and a half weeks, if I remember right. I technically should have been deemed in remission then, but because insurance wanted to drag their feet on, you know, getting different scans accepted and whatnot, I had to basically wait about six months until I was officially declared in remission. And so my official remission date is when I was 25 in January. Um, but I've been cancer free ever since. And that's really what got me interested in oncology and cancer medicine in general and trying to figure out, okay, what's a way we can try to help these patients. And I noticed in regards to sexuality with how that ties into that, there was a stark lack of general knowledge available to cancer patients. And, you know, going through Reddit forms, Facebook groups, that kind of thing, you notice there was this general trend of my oncologist really didn't tell me anything or my OBGYN just kind of shrugged their shoulders and gave me general advice. And I was like, that's a little off. And that's why I really wanted to do that workshop about it, just to try to explain 
my own experience with it as well as try to give just general sex ed health ed tips because I did get certified with my state to teach health education. I just never found a job for it. So I got the certification. It's just no job opening. So, yeah. Um, so what kind of information do you think cancer patients need in terms of sexuality? Well, for starters, um, regardless whatever kind of sexy fun you're going to have in that regard, lubrication is an absolute must. I noticed for myself. I was what you would consider dry as a desert, and I just kind of felt like even hygienic pro products were painful to use. And I was like, why is this so hard? This was not hard before. So I went to my OBGYN, and she suggested coconut oil, and I was like, okay. And I still psychologically freaked myself out, and I did not become comfortable with that again until probably three years later when I could actually start to build my confidence with that stuff again. So. I think just if patients were at least given a heads up of what are potential problems, side effects that could appear when it comes to cancer and your sexual health in general, be it vaginal dryness or irregular menstrual periods, the possibility of going into your own version of menopause if they give you hormone blockers, like, you know, if you have the vagina set and whatnot, um, that would be useful. I know for people with the prostate, the testes and all that, they go through their own thing as well. And I do not have those parts. So I cannot personally attest to what would happen in that situation. So primarily this is speaking from more of an assigned female at birth perspective, but I do try to research and do give adequate information of what I find. So I'm not just shooting my mouth off. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, and that, that is so important because when when you're going through the process of um, cancer treatment, um, cancer diagnosis and treatment, maybe those are not the first questions that you think about um, as a patient, but eventually those questions will come up. And if your doctor, any of your medical doctors are equipped with the knowledge, they can get ahead of it and say, oh, by the way, some of the side effects that you're going to have of on these uh, treatments are, and then the plethora of, like you said, the, the, the changes in, in your hormonal cycle, the changes of behavior of, of the reproductive system or, and whether or not they will be reproductive in the future. Um, but having a doctor that can tell you that before you start asking those questions will be very useful. Yeah. I. Personally, I just really wish I was given some kind of heads up in that regard, just so I could be aware of, oh, this might happen to me. So when it did happen to me, I was just like, wait, what? Why? <laughs> v, do you think that the, you know, people who have a hard time talking about these types of topics, is it because either they're, they're not told up front by their medical providers, or do you think it's even well before that where, you know, we have a difficult time in general talking about sex and sexuality um and so that that topic just doesn't carry forward when someone's going through um a situation like this i think it's a little bit of a complicated type subject as to why a lot of patients don't necessarily get this kind of information obviously sex and sexuality in general is considered extremely taboo regardless if it's a male female male male female female what whatever the parts are involved here um when it comes to solo sessions, that is extremely taboo and people do not want to talk about masturbation or anything like that at all. So that could be another reason why people are just like, 
about it. There's also the fact that when it comes to medicine, because like I said, I've been working in medicine for about three and a half years, we, ca- we have what's called a scope of practice where if a doctor feels like it is something beyond what they studied, what they specialized in, they might hand you off to someone else. And in this case, you know, if you have the whole vagina, uterus and all that, they might send you off to an OBGYN for people with prostates, testes and all that, they might send you off to a general practitioner. But if either of those doctors are not comfortable necessarily saying this is is what could happen with cancer treatments or just the psychological pressure or block you might experience, they just might shrug their shoulders. So unfortunately there's that. And I think it's also the fact that unfortunately cancer affects a lot of older people and people don't think, oh, old people and sex, that's the last thing they want to think about. So even though there is plenty of evidence to suggest that they're still very active. <laughs> well, l- luckily, you've hit on a couple of topics that we have no problem talking about on this podcast, um, and that is, you know, all different types of sex, you know, regardless of how the human identifies or their sexuality. We had a we had a guest that um, talked exclusively on um, sex and and um, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Old age, I guess, if you will. Um, so. I, I'm just curious too. So you brought up one thing. You know, it's usually kind of like a pass the baton type issue. Um, and I'm also thinking now too. You know, when someone might be first diagnosed with cancer, um, you know, sex is probably the last thing on their mind. Um, but but people who go through different treatments, um, you know, and if they're in remission or whether or not you know they have a, a longer time frame of, of life expectancy with a terminal diagnosis you know eventually they still have needs and they want them met so during that process how often do you see uh that baton passed where for providers not comfortable talking they pass it on to someone who might have the answer and so on and so forth or is it just one of those things where sometimes you get lucky but most times you don't from what i have personally witnessed it's more along the lines of that process doesn't even really begin to start a lot of people might ask something on an anonymous form like reddit because i feel more comfortable being anonymous on the internet than saying this face-to-face with my doctor if it is face-to-face with your doctor you might get lucky but again it's kind of dependent on what the doctor personally feels comfortable discussing um how explicitly detailed they're they're willing to get and that kind of thing so okay here comes the hard question then how do, how do we normalize these conversations? Honestly, it starts with, you know, the younger generations actually demanding state mandated comprehensive sexual health educations with community health centers. You can have weekly class setups where they advertise around town, be it restaurant windows or social media, because social media is the way to go right now. Just saying, hey, we have this group chat about whatever sexuality topic it is, toys, health, wellness, whatever it is, um, try to get people who have relatively a good center of knowledge of that. And essentially it's working from the community up. That is really the best way to start mandating and getting people better educated on these kinds of things. You can't really say, leave it up to the parents or leave it up to the internet because there's so much misinformation out there. You really need someone who actually knows what they're discussing to be able to create this positive uh, whirlwind of a positive change in this kind of situation. Okay. I'm going to keep asking hard questions and I apologize in advance for it. <laughs> and and so 
uh, I, I like what you're saying. Um, you know, one of the issues that I have in my mind, you know, with some of the issues we're facing today, even even to our talking to our past selves at the moment, um, you know, with the uh, with the different rulings and laws that are being passed uh, in the state of Texas and Governor Abbott. Um, and some other things that we see, um, not primarily in the Northeast, where I believe we're all based, but elsewhere. Um, you know, when we promote these types of things, this podcast, you know, your discussion on, on cancer and sexuality and, and any of our other topics, when we tend to post into social media and on Reddit, we tend to enter into an echo chamber of people who share a similar set of ideals um, and all want to promote the same thing. But we're not reaching the people who could really benefit it because... They either have parents or guardians who subscribe to a very different set of ideals, and so therefore their access to that information isn't readily available. How do we how do we reach across that uh, that barrier, across that divide, to get that information to folks who who are essentially starving for it? Honestly, a good way to do that is to find a way to start breaking down those barriers, be it. If, say, just offbeat example, if they're very religious, how can we bring it up in a way that they could relate to? Or maybe is there a specific character within this religious book that they could relate to and then start to go from there? It's really a matter of finding those few things that they could say, oh, I relate to that or, oh, I personally identify that and identify with that in some shape or form and try to slowly expand from that. Another way is to try to get this information out in schools, not necessarily, um, hey kids, this is how we have sex, but um, <laughs> like protection methods, um, not being afraid to talk about the LGBT community and just get their minds going because once you set that spark, it's almost impossible to shut it down. So it's about finding that way to reach across in an open and willing mindset and not be judgmental or so quick to say, oh, you're homophobic or you're, transpho- you're transphobic or whatever it is, because yes, those things are bad, but you need to be willing to take a step back and say, okay, why do you think like that? Why do you feel like that? What can we do to try to change it in a positive light? That's great information. Um, you know, there's a lot of things that we talk about, this one in particular, um, that there is, regardless of your background, socioeconomic status, et cetera, et cetera, that um, cancer doesn't care about um, many of the illnesses that we all experience. They don't care whether you're Republican, Democrat, um, communist. Um, it, it's going to you know, impact you either directly or, or probably through a, a family member. So having those, those conversations, I think, are, are very important um, in understanding that at the end of the day, we're all still humans and we all experience real emotions and have real struggles. So thank you. As I was, I was promising, I did get my co-host to join in. Uh, so thanks, Josh, for jumping in. You um, just, just your friendly sound guy jumping in again. Yes. <laughs> Um, but since we're in the topic of cancer and, and like you said, Josh, we have a lot, we've all been touched by cancer in one way or another, either personally or by a family member or a friend that, that has been diagnosed or has gone through that. Um, but one of the things is we all have this image in mind of what cancer looks like, and that brings a lot of misconceptions. Um, so what do you think are some of the most common misconceptions about having cancer 
Well, one, it's a old person, quote unquote, disease, because normally people will think, oh, cancer, it's either very old, like the 55 plus age community, or the very young, because they're always seeing those St. Jude Law commercials about saved cancer kids and all that. So they never think about that in-between zone between teenagers, young adults, 30s, 40s. So there's that. There's also the fact that one of the biggest misconceptions, even within the cancer community, is don't eat sugar. It'll feed the cancer. The thing is, breaking it down into simplistic biology, all of our cells require sugar. Cancer is not unique in that. So if you're suddenly cutting off all your sugars, well, your cells are going to be starving for energy, glucose, to convert into ATP, which is the technical science term for uh, energy. So that's another huge misconception that drives me up the wall with that kind of thing. It's like coming from someone who went through cancer themselves and you essentially have to have a very high food budget because your food preferences might change between hours, between days of, can I tolerate that and not get sick or feel nauseous? So I'm personally of the opinion, if it tastes good and you're not facing immediately harmful side effects, eat it, enjoy yourself. <laughs> right. And sometimes you need to go back to your comfort foods because you need some comfort, um, especially if you're in the middle of treatment, you need things that make you feel good, even if it's feel good emotionally. Um, mm -hmm. So that's the, the sugar one is one that I heard a lot. Um, so my mother had cancer a couple of years back um, and she, during her treatment, one of her friends told her like, oh, cut out all the sugar. And she was telling me like, I don't know how to do that because carbs convert into sugar. So she, she had that uh, background and I'm like, no, no, you're not doing that. You're eating whatever it is you're craving because at some point you may lose your appetite and won't want to eat anything. So if you're craving anything, if it's sugary, eat it. It's not going to hurt you. That's kind of the other misconception about cancer that every cancer patient is going to look like a frail, emaciated person. Not necessarily. The, because with a lot of cancer treatments, especially if you go through chemo, they will give you steroids to help reduce the chance of being nauseated. But steroids for some people will make them feel absolutely ravenous. So instead of dropping 20 pounds, they're going to gain 20 pounds. I was one of those people. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, steroids are, are very weird that way. Um, you, you're either very hungry or very not hungry, and either very tired or very energetic. It's they, they don't have a very set. It's a very broad difference. Um, so V, I had a question that I, I, uh, you and uh, Vima were talking, and that is, so we've talked a lot about um, cancer patients and their uh, different <clears throat> concerns and, and questions relating to sex. What about someone who um, has a relationship with someone who has cancer? How does... If you have any experience with dealing with that side of it, how do how do partners of cancer patients, cancer survivors, broach this topic about reengaging in sex um, and things that they should keep in mind um, when engaging in those activities? Well, some of it could obviously there are some cancers that can affect that region of the body. So, burying it's not one of those because that's a whole ball game in of itself <laughs> um for cancers that are not related to the genitalia area um really one communicate that is an absolute must talk to your partner 
the BDSM community specifically has a checklist, so to speak, of what we consider hard and soft limits. A hard limit is saying, no, I'm absolutely not interested in that. A soft limit is maybe once or twice, I don't know. So you can find one of those checklists online, go down it with your partner and just say, yes, no, yes, no. That is a very easy way in a very non-judgmental or how do I approach this type way because it just lists things out. I always recommend that to people who are like, I don't know how to even begin to talk about this. Obviously, um, set up some kind of safety system where regardless if it's kinky, sex, getting it on, or just typical missionary, if something starts to hurt, something feels uncomfortable, use that safety system, whether it's, you know, red, yellow, green, green, you're good to go, yellow, ease off a little bit, or red, stop, 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 safe words, you know, how you get into all that. Um, that is very important. And also lube is your best friend. Do not get the numbing stuff because pain, pain is your body saying that's wrong. Stop. No, no. So lube is your best friend in this regard. I personally recommend water-based lube and some people will say coconut oil, but coconut oil can potentially degrade some products, be it a condom or specific toys. Um, so when in doubt, uh, a good cheap equate water-based lube is fine when you're in a pinch. Uh, don't be afraid to experiment with stuff. Do not get the more expensive stuff. <laughs> <laughs> so I remember going to the pharmacy the other day and there was lube for like $30. And I'm like, why would I pay that much? <laughs> so, well, un under certain circumstances, I have paid a, uh, a ridiculous amount for lube, but um, only after <laughs> experimenting with sample packs, understanding that, yes, this is something that I like and something my body enjoys. Right. So really, it's all about just keeping that communication line open, regardless if you're preparing for it, getting things ready for play or within the act itself. Um, obviously, if something suddenly hurts or mentally you're just, oh, no, this is bad, tell them. So you can discuss that with the aftercare and be like, okay, what went well, what didn't go well? How can we make this better? Is there something else you're interested in? sexy costumes, different items, or whatever it is that you're interested in, in that regard. Um, but for me personally, what I recommend people besides that open communication line is all the lube. You can never have too much lube. <laughs> so I, I think we'll retitle this episode all about the lube. Um, yeah. <laughs> I think that's something that, that ship in general wholeheartedly endorses. <laughs> Um, yeah. So you brought up some 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 excellent ideas, um, and and I'm just thinking too that it's not just for, uh, you know, when we're dealing with issues of cancer. It it is for any type of different type of medical ailment or or change in health status. Um, that it's good to, you know, communicate even if you've done it in the past. You know, you have a, a long term partner or, so, or someone you've been playing with for a while that you you rehash these things out and you understand that you know. Maybe before you could do a certain activity, maybe now that's off limits, or you have to um, modify it to some degree. I know um, it <laughs> for for our longtime listeners, and you, no one can see my air quotes. Longtime listeners, we're on episode twenty something at this point. Um, it's no secret that I am a big fan of uh, the BDSM stuff, and uh, recently um, have a new play partner that uh, has turned into quite the rope bunny. But she. Um, she has a number of medical issues that prevent her from doing certain things or things that her body can do um, that she doesn't feel. So I have to be very aware of certain positions that she's in um, because she could overstretch and not feel it until there's already an injury and by then it's too late. 
So, um, so that's all great stuff for not just, again, not just cancer-related uh, stuff, but for any type of, of medical issue. Yeah, those are uh, really good advices for, for anyone with chronic pain or, or a short-term illness or injury. Um, what comes to mind is the one time that I tweaked my back because I bent over to pick up something the wrong way. Apparently, I'm old. Um, and for the next six months, my back was hurting a lot. So what that meant for us was, like you said, the communication with my partner, but also looking at things in a more accessible way. Where can we put pillows? So while we're doing the things, while we're having the sets, um, it doesn't hurt. That means maybe buying wedge pillows or extra regular pillows and, and stuffing them in a way that cradles you and you're comfortable so you can enjoy yourself without hurting anything. Before I ask my next question, I'm not going to let it slide that you said the word the sex. The just, sex, I yes. The make sex. Everybody aware of that, that it's the uh, sex. Okay. Is the sex with the lube. <laughs> v, you had mentioned earlier a little bit about some of your work um, in the medical field, but particularly you were talking about some of the stuff during your thesis about um, cannabis. And um, does that relate at all to any of the sexuality work that you've done in the past? Um, obviously, if you just smoke regular weed, that can affect your sexuality in the sense of perception, pain, potential dissociation, um, that kind of thing. So that can cause a problem. Uh, for some people, it enhances. So it all depends on the person. I know that when I was going through cancer, uh, having CBD, which is the comes from cannabinoid plants without the THC. That was a huge reason for why I wasn't constantly nauseated. Yeah, as, as you know, New England kind of opens up their um, laws, I suppose, uh, regarding items like that. Um, you know, I especially see it in Massachusetts where there are a lot more medical um, dispensaries for that type of stuff. Rhode Island is, is getting there, uh, I believe. So I just didn't know if there was anything that was uh, worthwhile to discuss in that realm um, or if there are, you know, things that, that folks should watch out for if they are, you know, a, uh, a medical marijuana card holder, things like that. And they're, and they're going through these types of treatments that also compound issues um, with sex and, you know, uh, that might already be there. It's interesting because we actually have what's called an endocannabinoid system within our bodies. It's not that well talked about within the medical community, but because our ancestors in ye old cavemen days were also interested in marijuana over the years and years and years of evolution and being exposed to this, our bodies essentially adapted its own internal system to get the benefits of it. So for like myself, I use CBD on a regular basis to deal with chronic pain. Uh, help me sleep at night and some other things. So that endocannabinoid system has so many potential positive effects for us, be it sexuality, dealing with everyday pains or specific conditions like cancer, chemo and everything like that. So I will I will preface my next question with saying that um, we are not medical professionals. Um, so the question I'm about to ask is simply about your opinion and not legal advice or, or anything else that may be construed as that. But for someone who is interested in trying that, 
um, you know, how would they go about, you know, finding what works for them, whether it be CBD or otherwise? I'll speak strictly from a CBD perspective because that's where I'm most knowledgeable on. Not so much medical marijuana or other forms of cannabinoids. So strictly CBD, there's a few different ways you can take it. Um, one is under the tongue and that's a dropper where most of those droppers will start in 250 milligrams. And the nice thing about cannabinoids is the fact that there isn't necessarily a overdose warning or anything like that. You just might get a little bit sleepy. Some people feel a little bit nauseated if they take too much. Um, so there's that. You can get little gummy edibles or have it and drop, use the dropper on food. Um, that's another way to take it. Some people do it in their tea like that. Um, normally for the gummies or something like that, it might start small at like five, between five and 25 milligrams. That all depends on the product. Um, some people will vape it. That's how I got into it. Um, I started, you start at 250 milligrams, but I've seen it go as high as 1,000, 2,000 milligrams. Again, it all depends on how your body personally reacts to it, what it needs from it, because if the dosage is too low, you're not going to really feel anything. But it's kind of like Goldilocks. you got to find that sweet spot where you don't feel overly drowsy, but you don't you don't feel like it's not helping you at all. So some people develop a little bit of a tolerance to it so you'll have to gradually go up the scale on that regard um for other people's they just need a much heavier dosage like for myself i use a thousand milligrams because my body has that much chronic pain and everything else so normally i'll tell people if they're interested in vaping it at least start at 250 or 500 milligrams and adjust from there thankfully there's a lot of um going into vape shops, they might have a basic bare bones knowledge of CBD because that's becoming a lot more commonplace to find that and things like that. There's also a ton of places online to learn about CBD specifically with Facebook groups, Reddit, that kind of thing. I actually see it quite a bit uh, being sold in, in some of our local sex shops as well, um, which was kind of surprising the first time I walked in one and it was like, okay, this is a change in business. <laughs> <laughs> I would not recommend buying it from gas stations or other questionable sources like that. Um, my favorite personal brand of CBD stuff is Koi, K-O-I. Um, they have really nice quality stuff, but also on their website, you can check a third-party lab testing report on their CBD. So if you want to be extra careful, so definitely go to the more reputable brands. Avoid places like gas stations where they it looks like a cheap Chinese knockoff or something. Yeah, and and sometimes the, you know, depending on what you're buying, especially if you're buying like a bottle with a drop or something like that, the the dosage on the bottle is a little hard to understand for a first-time user because um, mm -hmm. usually it's it's done based on per milliliter. So you know, it requires a little bit of basic math to figure out how much you're actually uh, you're taking. A good way to go about that is a good general rule of thumb is the higher the milligram, the stronger the dose and concentration, because it's like trying to say in a glass bottle, do you have five teaspoons or do you have 10 teaspoons in, in it? So it's a good way to visualize it. Yeah. Back to you, Vima. <laughs> Back to me. Um... So it, it's very interesting um, what Josh mentioned of having uh, the CBD being sold as at local set shops. Um, they also have a lot of lubes that have CBD in them. Do you have any experience with those? I personally do not. I primarily use CBD as a vapable thing or edible. 
device, be it in gummies or a brownie or something like that. It doesn't have any THC in it, so I don't have to worry about the psychoactive potential side effects of that. So I personally do not have any experience with that or knowledge that anything like that. So I, I cannot give a good comment. <laughs> yeah. Um, so I'll just toss it back to the listeners. If anyone has had any experience with uh, CBD lubes, drop us a message. We would like to know because we're very curious like that. With that, I recommend we take a short break and then we'll come back with a few more questions before we wrap up. Hey everyone, SHIP will never stop creating spaces that provide opportunities to engage in candid, shame-free conversations about sexuality, and we are committed to building a more sexually literate society so that more of these spaces can exist. In order to do that, we need your help. Consider joining the Sex Ed Squad by visiting weknowship.org. Our Sex Ed Squad members are the very foundation of our work, because changing our sex-negative culture requires a long-term strategy in your long-term investment. All gifts, no matter the size, have an impact. Okay, we're back to Virgin Territory, a podcast brought to you by SHIP, and we are talking with V. Um, v, uh, we're at the tail end of the podcast here for this episode, and I did want to, you know, we talked about a lot of uh, heavy stuff with cancer, medical issues, um, and some other topics. But what I want to do is spend these last couple of minutes and actually talk about some of your art and give you a chance to kind of explain where you get your inspiration from. Um, you know, or is it something that people can purchase or you do it simply for yourself and for the enjoyment for from others? Uh, sure. Um, I, the way I do commissions is kind of low key because I am busy with my everyday work first, but on my portfolio website, which is on my campsite, I think it's like one of the first two links on the campsite tree link thing. Um, if people want to commission me, if they're interested, they can just go to that website and it'll have all the information relating to that with rates, what I'm comfortable doing, what I'm not comfortable doing, that kind of thing. Normally, I end up doing a lot of portraiture, fashion design, illustration. I'll sometimes do medical illustration. It all kind of depends. Um, I don't do animals that much, just just the thing I just I just don't do it <laughs> but I would think the best way to kind of explain my style to those unfamiliar is that it is a combination of anatomical realism with fashion illustration and anime manga since I grew up on a lot of anime manga growing up so that definitely influenced my art as you know I got older and just everyone has their own natural style and that's the best way I can try to describe it to people so I'm, I'm looking at one piece in particular. I have the benefit of, of sitting at my computer and multiple screens so I can, like, meta-podcast here. I've got program one in one screen. i got the Zoom in another. I'm actually looking because you, you mentioned one about, um, you know, portraitures uh, and things like that. So I happen to just click on one. I'm just curious. Maybe our listeners are too, um, you know, just to get a sense of, of your artwork. I'm looking at one titled Purple Thyroid, if you remember that one. Mm-hmm. Um, I do. Do you want to tell us a little bit about what inspired you to actually uh, create this and what it might represent? Sure. Um, Purple Thyroid was a series, a part of a small series I got started on. I never got around to finishing. Um, I have always been fascinated by different anatomy, parts of the body, anatomy, physiology in general. And one idea I've always had in mind was to draw these really pretty or interesting looking feminine 
uh, individuals and on their neck show some kind of body part. The one I did before that, I think it was called Red Scarlet Heart or something like that. I don't remember off the top of my head because it's been a few years since I've done that series. Um, but it was a woman and she had a really nice uh, red anatomical heart on the side of her neck just because I thought it looked really cool. So the sequel to that was Purple Thyroid where it was a, I used an Asian stock model photo to get my outline on it and then I, I love the color purple so I was like let's make it purple themed so that's why it kind of has that monochromatic purple purpley theme to it and the thyroid is a very interesting organ in regards to the human body because regardless if you have an overactive or underactive thyroid it has the potential to cause a chain effect on so many different body parts which is why it's so interesting to me and that's why I decided to give that organ the centerpiece on that one Thanks for sharing. Uh, I, I, I'd like to piece myself. Hmm. I'm, I'm just very sad that I don't have double monitors, so I haven't <laughs> been able to look at it. So after the show, I'm running downstairs to the sound basement <laughs> to look at all of them. Um, so we are running into the end of the show, but before we end, we have a special area. Um, not area, special section um, called the hot seat questions. Um, some fun questions that are just to get a sense of who you are. Um, they're fun, they're lightweight, and they will be very entertaining. So without further ado, are you ready? As ready as I'll ever be. <laughs> All right, first question, Pepsi or Coke? Coke. Favorite ice cream flavor? Uh, probably Oreo. Ooh, I like Oreo. Uh, what, who is the best Marvel character? Um, uh, my heart goes to the Scarlet Witch. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I hope you, you got a chance to see, um, WandaVision at some point. Oh, it's one of my favorites. Nice. I, I really like that show too. Um, wrong answer only. Why is there fuss on a tennis ball? People were getting a little too kinky with it. <laughs> I think they were going to get kinky with the fuzz on it. <laughs> <laughs> All right. And last question, my favorite. What sound does a fox make? Oh. <laughs> <laughs> priceless i love it um so v thank you so much for joining us uh this was a wonderful conversation and we learned a lot um and thank you for sharing your experience with us um to our listeners we'll have the the link for campsite um on the show notes so you can go and look at v's art um and do a commission You've been listening to Virgin Territory, a podcast by SHIP, a nonprofit organization dedicated to providing culturally inclusive, medically accurate, and pleasure-guided sexuality education, therapy, and professional training to adults. You can visit us online at weknowship.org. Are you waiting for me to say something? 
Oh, yes, because usually when you come on camera, that means that um something went wrong or you're just gonna say something. <laughs> nope, go ahead, keep going. I'm okay. Sorry, I, I, I lost my thought for a second. <laughs> um, I forgot where I was. That's right. I need help, Josh. That's I'm okay. sorry. I'm here. I'll make a weird cut and I'll fix it later. Thank you. You are welcome. <laughs> uh, I will pop back in to ask questions while you gather your thoughts. 